Hello and welcome to the pod, people. Your number one source for all the Alita Battle Angel news. I, I'm Matisse, and I'm joined as always by Ben in Cleveland, and we're talking about Alita Battle Angel. It's got knives, it's got angels, and it's got sex with robots. And battle. Now that's what I call art. That's what I call art. Now, what did you guys think about Alita Battle Angel? Because I thought it was a masterpiece. Can I give a movie a six out of five? Yeah, for yeah. first it's, time ever. It's a 4.9 out of 5 from me, only because I think that Alita's eyes weren't big enough. You know, they should have stuck with their, their guns on that and kept those eyes big and creepy. You know, what I was what I was really surprised about is when I was watching the trailers, I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, right, there's no way I'm going to get hot for that battle angel. But you know what? I'll be gosh darned if that fucking battle angel didn't make me horny as shit. I was oh, yeah. rock hard this entire movie. Oh, it yeah, was, sign me up for every piece of Rule 34 there is. Just we, like, I was afraid we oh, were going to have like a Pee Wee Herman scenario on our hands man mm-hmm. that fucking what that you, battle angel you weren't rock hard during peewee herman because he sure was well, at I, the movie theater that that's what i meant yeah hey so what are we actually <laughs> talking about we're talking about velvet buzzsaw it's another art episode art two art hooray yeah a sister episode two do you know the episode number nope <laughs> uh, I do know that it was entitled Art, and uh, we talked about a Bucket of Blood and, and, murder party. and Murder Party. Well, I think uh, before we get into Velvet Buzzsaw, uh, it, it's funny that we're mentioning a Bucket of Blood because the legendary Dick Miller did just die like two weeks ago. Oh, damn. I didn't even yeah. realize. Dick Miller, in one of his only leading roles in A Bucket of Blood ancillary character in in many a great film gremlins the burbs all kinds of stuff damn rip um, king yeah man rip king i think it's interesting that this episode is kind of a sequel to our art episode because it emphasizes the absurdity modern art in a lot of the same ways those yes. movies did but this movie is very different Written and directed by Dan Gilroy of Nightcrawler fame. This is his third feature-length film. I did not see Roman J. Israel Esquire. I did. (laughs) I unfortunately did. I think I will be avoiding that, but I'm glad to see that he's back on the right track. For me, Velvet Buzzsaw did not reach the same peak as Nightcrawler, but I did overall find it pretty enjoyable. Cleveland, can you yes. uh, summarize this movie for us really quick? So, um, I wanted to kind of add on to what Tisha's bringing up about his his thoughts on it. Um, uh, it was interesting for me because I hadn't seen Nightcrawler when we watched Velvet Buzzsaw, first off. I think that's a that's an important thing yeah. to note. And mm-hmm. then also, like, I walked in that world a little bit uh, uh, and, and seen, like, a, a great deal of, of modern art. And, Pretentious and shitheads. Accurate. The film hit a lot of sweet spots for me, personally. And again, I didn't have Nightcrawler to compare it to. Absolutely, when I yeah. watched it. So for me, I I uh, I loved the shit out of this film, and I have, yeah, I have definitely. Little, little can you can you about. explain to the audience what it was about quickly? Yes. Now I did watch Nightcrawler after. So Velvet Buzzsaw is about a collective of fine art producers. You see the perspective of the critics and the representatives, and uh, you get the whole gamut of of fine art 
periphery and people in that community, modern art in particular. One of the, the collectors uh, discovers this new artist, and uh, the paintings are cursed. Chaos ensues from there, and it's yeah. all largely commentary. In a turn that feels like Final Destination premiering at the MoMA. Yeah, that's uh, honestly know. well said. Accurate. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. Very true. It's a very funny movie. I would definitely call it a horror comedy in a lot of ways. It's definitely a black comedy. Even though yeah. it's very dry. Which in its I think comedy. also makes it uh, a good companion piece to Bucket of Blood and Murder Party, because those are both horror comedies as well but i mean it's all it's all satire of the the pretension and self-seriousness of the art world and velvet buzzsaw more specifically about the people who are in the art world but who are not the artists yeah Um, yeah i think most of the main characters in velvet buzzsaw are either critics or collectors or gallery owners yeah. yeah well i mean they all are all the main characters it's a big ensemble cast uh sort of in the style of robert altman the artists themselves are pretty much entirely in the periphery mm-hmm. um like john malkovich's character and david diggs's character we get a little bit of them but it's mostly about like jake gyllenhaal who is like the premier uh contemporary art critic um and uh renee russo uh, who is an owner of a, an extremely successful contemporary art gallery, and uh, her her PA, who is the one who uh, discovers the art uh, from this uh, unknown artist and uses that to elevate her own status. Um, fuck, what is that Josephina? actress? Yeah, Josephina. What is that actress's name? I need uh, to... Um... Zawe Ashton, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, who plays Josephina. And then you've got uh, the the South African guy, uh, John Don Don, um, who is an, another uh, competing gallery owner. Uh, the so- pretentious... Pretentiousness even goes down to their names. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal is named Morph. Morph. Well, Morph Vandewal. Van I don't think yeah, they're, they're gallery owners. I think they're representatives. No, they're, Rene Russo and uh, Jean Dondon are gallery owners. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Um, but, I mean, obviously gallery owners do a lot more than just exhibit art you know they have to lend it out to other collections and museums and stuff and they curate a lot of that shit mm-hmm. so they're I think renee's like fo- focused on they like, they, they very much artists. they very much play the role of producers in the art world yes um so uh yeah it's most of the characters are it, it's critique of the people who get stupid rich off of art but who are not artists which I think is uh, a really interesting and seldom examined aspect of the art world in a film like this, whereas something like Murder Party, uh, I know you didn't see that, Cleveland, but as we talked about on the show, that is about a collective of artists murdering for the sake of art, whereas in this, the paintings are cursed and kill the people who are... Soulless, really who them. are soullessly profiting yeah, off of somebody yeah, else's yeah. work. Yeah, the thing I appreciate most about it is while they do take some cheap digs at contemporary art, you know, like plenty. You know, there's some moments where you're just groaning. Like I, there's a point where a character passes by a pile of garbage, and they're like, 
that art is remarkable, and yeah, they're this like, is, this is oh yeah, when work. when John Don Don goes to see John Malkovich in his studio, and there's just like a pile of trash bags on the floor, he's like, oh, I love this, it's so evocative, and and John Malkovich is like, that's not art. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing I like is while there are moments like that, which kind of make me groan at times, just because it's such an easy target. I love it. Like I think at the same time, like. It goes beyond that, and I think... This film goes for the low and high-hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah. I think Dan Gilroy has an appreciation for contemporary art, and I think he realizes that artists put their soul into work, and there's such a weird, at-odds relationship between that aspect and the idea that art is a commodity to be sold for seven, eight figures and to be collected by the uber rich. Yes. It just doesn't feel together. And I think that's where the movie works the most. I think this film plays to a lot of the same strengths that Nightcrawler had. I think Dan Gilroy is at his best doing character-driven plot lines and really bringing it home on the research. Nightcrawler was well-researched and just had phenomenal dialogue when it came to the the point of sociopaths and this film approaches uh modern art or postmodern art in a very similar way like he really did his homework these these characters as hyperbolic as they seem they also feel very genuine i've met these people well apparently <laughs> yeah, these, apparently these dan gilroy people. spends a lot of time in that world because he d- he's a self-described amateur art collector so apparently that makes he sense. He spends a lot of time in galleries looking at contemporary art and dealing with people like this. Uh, so I, I think he a lot of the stuff that he's writing is from experience. And we've we've all met these people. Oh, yeah. I, I think I think Cleveland, you have probably the most experience with these people in terms of the specific medium of art. With Ben and I, I think it's more with snobby film people, uh, just from our time in film yeah. school. Oh yeah, I'm sure you all uh, which film. which is. Very much the same, but also different. But I, I think that I think that Dan Gilroy has a lot of contempt for the sort of uh, vapid approach that people like this take to art, where they act like they know so much about it, but they don't really acknowledge what the artist is putting into it. It's simply, as you said, been a commodity to be sold. They look at it as what is, what is sellable, not what is actually good. Yeah. Yeah. It's much more contempt for grifters that, you know, use the art as a commodity much more than it is about people art yeah contempt for the art or for the artists you know the artists in this movie are some of the only redeemable characters yeah no they absolutely are and uh i spoilers i guess but they're also the only ones who are free from the the supernatural effects of the the deece paintings like yeah. you, you see a few times David Diggs's character, who is an artist himself, enraptured at the Deese paintings, like that he can't look away. So he's hypnotized by them in the sense that he appreciates what the artist has done, but he is not trying to profit off of them. Right, and that that scene in particular is really neat, where he is enraptured by the painting because that his character at that point is also at a threshold where he can right. enter 
this community and become the kind of person who produces work that he's, is made to be a commodity. He's essentially been bought from mm. a, a collective of artists who make art for the sake of art. He's he's like a graffiti artist. Yeah. So at that moment, he is being tempted by those right. paintings, uh, tempted to be slain by those paintings, but he's at the threshold. And so when he decides not to, I think that saves him from those paintings. And it's cool, too, because we, we don't see his, like the, the effects of his enrapturement. We just get shots of his face yeah. during it. So it kind of we is a cool the, way of getting that. We see the fire of one of the Deese paintings moving a little <clears throat> bit, but that's about it. In his eyes, yeah. Oh, they're reflected in his um, eyes, yeah. I yeah I, I like that honestly one of I think this movie's shortcomings is I I think I would like to see a little bit more of that I wish the artist characters like John Malkovich and David Diggs maybe were had a little bit more focus that's it's sort of you know something that is a downfall of ensemble casts uh, is that you you d- just don't have time yeah. to like fully develop all the characters. I would I would definitely agree with that. If if this film has if I could put my finger on any problems this film has, it would definitely be a point of focus. Yeah. You know, like it in a similar way that Nightcrawler was sort of allegorical uh, allegorically talking about the news industry, this film tried to do the same with postmodern art. Yeah. But I... the issue is that Nightcrawler has one singular focal character that the camera yes. revolves around, whereas this film it it exclusively bounces around even like the the Deese paintings aren't a focal character in that and the film is titled Velvet Buzzsaw which is strange because that's one of the secondary characters sort of hallmarks well I I mean I think it does serve a symbolic purpose but we'll get into that in a second Mm -hmm. I do want to talk a little bit more about the connection between the two movies yeah because I even after we watched Velvet Buzzsaw I was mentioning that you know like I do see them very much as sister movies because for both of the movies, they're very much, you know, snakes that eat their own tail in a lot of ways. Whereas Nightcrawler is about reporting making the news as much as news making reporting. I think in a lot of ways, Velvet Buzzsaw is about the market making the art as much as the art making the market. You know, like the type of art that's being made is directed by these market influencers these you know scummy pretentious pieces of shit sociopath narcissists you know in a similar way to nightcrawler i do agree that it is less focused than in nightcrawler mainly because of the ensemble cast yeah less narratively focused yeah i would say like like the commentary is the is well done is well well put out sure no that's the thing well nightcrawler every single scene is about the advancement of jake gyllenhaal's storyline whereas in velvet buzzsaw you've got jake gyllenhaal's character who is probably the the primary protagonist along with renee russo but you know then you've also got josephina and john malkovich and john don don and coco and coco and it's just every time it starts to get at something for one of the characters it bounces to another one and the thing is like couple things so first off we throw out the robert altman comparison with ensemble casting but the thing about robert altman movies is most of the time they're like three hours long right you know you give them each character plenty of time to roll out their own motivations and thorough directed storylines that being said i'm glad velvet buzzsaw was not three hours yeah the runtime felt right it 
felt a little long for me. I'm on like, the same page with like you, Ben. It, it did feel felt, a little bit It long. felt like a Robert Altman movie in length, but not in focus. And I think the other thing about ensemble pieces, I think of movies like Boogie Nights, for example. Yeah, which that's is a great very example. much an ensemble movie, but there's a focus through line throughout it where it's being pushed forward uh, so strongly that you don't even feel the length or the you know the bouncing around as much. Whereas I think this movie prods along a little more slowly, which isn't necessarily a problem. It's just that when things do ramp up, it doesn't feel as deserved, I guess. The approach to narrative is uh, is much less uh, Western in this film. Um, it's it, The focus is much more about the moment than it is where things are headed, uh, which is interesting because like, the Deese paintings are heavily foreshadowed, but scene to scene, I personally, I, I enjoyed the shit out of this movie. There's, there wasn't a moment that I could pick out that I felt dragged or went slow i was i was always engaged and entertained wherever the camera or wherever the scene went to next even if there wasn't any focus on a singular plot line or character personally i appreciated that about the film uh and i don't see it as a a huge well that's the interesting thing too because i think while narratively it prods on a little bit thematically it's fairly tight oh yeah like each scene goes towards the idea that Gilroy is trying to paint, even if it's not pushing the narrative along super quickly. You know, I think of, you know, scenes with John Malkovich's character and how he's battling the idea that as a sober person now, his art isn't as, you know, widely considered, even though pushing himself towards alcoholism is a bad path for his life you know yeah he likes he likes the inspiration he's struggling with is he creating good work at the cost of his health and being an alcoholic or is he sober and producing less than less than good work and that's another thing just like with david diggs i wish there was more of that i i wish that that wasn't just brushed off like at one point uh, Rene Russo tells him, uh, go stay at my beach house in Malibu and live there until you make something for you. And then he's gone from the movie until the credits. <laughs> so it's, it's nice. It's nice to I see him. Too. I, I love, I love time. seeing him in at the credits at the end, you know, drawing, uh, in in the, the sand, which is then being washed away, so it is circles. It, so it is truly, truly just for, for him. Himself, but yeah. I I what which I think is a, a lovely way to wrap up the film at the end as the credits roll. But my problem is just that between those two points, he's completely absent. They just brush him off. I I personally I liked that about the film. I don't think that the the plot needed to f- focus more on the artists because in many ways the film was commentary on how that community doesn't focus on the artists and the art becomes because the art is being I made actually it to agree. I I think that's a good point. Um I think I think it could have just focused more on any one of the abusers of art. Sure. Yeah. I no, th- and that is that is a fair point and one that I didn't really consider but uh, so I I definitely see where you're coming from but another another problem that I had is just that all of the characters are so detestable and they're really well acted and really well written. They're like, they're purposely detestable, but 
at a certain point it gets it gets hard to spend so much time with those people you know without having a foil whereas a nightcrawler like Jake Gyllenhaal's character in that is is a sociopath like he's an absolute scumbag but he's surrounded by all of these people who are not sociopaths and have empathy to balance him out, you know? Also, there's a, that tide level of tension where you are watching him waiting for him to make a mistake. Right, exactly. And and that, that, that keeps you very glued to him, and you have that motivation to continue watching. Whereas in this film, it's true, the, the stakes the are, characters, are varied. The characters all are—they're just the worst kind of people. Now, yeah. I will say that for me—and again— this is very personal, and I don't see this as a disagreement with your point. But for me, I loved hating on them, and I could have gone with even more hate. Well, they're, they're like, and I oh, I love they're, it. And I was they're designed. They're it. designed to be hated, and it is fun to hate them. But at the same time, for me, at a point, it becomes exhausting. I'm like, give me somebody that I can relate to, please. Yeah, just like just give me somebody that I can relate to, and the characters that I can relate to are bare in the movie at all. They're David Diggs, they're John Malkovich, and they are Natalia Dyer. And I love those characters, but they're just so infrequently seen that it's I I know that's that is the intent it is the intention but it is uh, to an extent emotionally exhausting for me to watch it, you, you know. know it is. It's not that the film needed to focus on the artists more, it's that the film needed a straight man. Yeah. Like, there, and because one of the things that Nightcrawler does have is a straight man. Rick in like, Nightcrawler, exactly. yeah, is the straight like, man. Like Rick, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the whole time is, is presenting, like, the, the average, like, mentality. And uh, this film doesn't have that. And I think that it, I, I would have liked to see, have seen I think that should have, I think that should have been Coco in this movie. I would actually movie. slightly disagree. I think Josephina started at, as that and as the art world kind of corrupted her with Dees and but turned it, her to shit. But I mean, it happened so, but it happened so, it happened so quickly that that's the thing. You're absolutely right. You know, cause she starts out as Renee Russo's PA and she's living in kind of a junky apartment, you know, where Dees dies and she finds his collection. But that turning point, we, we don't see, how the art world gradually consumes her. It just jumps forward in time and she's living in this big penthouse and sleeping with Jake Gyllenhaal and and she's just I, and she's just all of a sudden one of them. We I don't guess Coco's character also sort of We don't see her is. journey. Well that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. Co- Coco, you know, we we learn that she's she's great. She's great. Yeah, Natalia Dyer's she's, awesome. You know, she's some a uh, girl from from Michigan. the Midwest. Who wants to get into the art world and is trying super hard to intern at any chance? But she gets. keeps she poor poor Coco. She keeps being the one to discover all of the bodies. And before that, gets like <laughs> she's also the person who gets like abused by yeah. the the uh by her bosses uh as well. Like, no, she, has she just is such a bad time of she it. She is film. she is the straight character. She is the most relatable character in the movie, mm-hmm. and I would love to have seen more of her. I think it would have been better to have the movie play out more from her perspective and have her be surrounded by all of these really gross detestable characters but have it have her be that through line but instead she's an ancillary character yeah and i think in a way the coco character plays on the class issues in the movie the strongest 
Yeah, uh, you totally. Know, yeah. Um, and you get some of that in Nightcrawler a little bit with, you know, the ideas of ideology behind news and stuff. But in Velvet Buzzsaw, it's really interesting because all of these detestable, shitty characters are super rich. And, you know, they're working for uber elites who just right. want to collect art as an investment for their portfolio, essentially. More so than any sort of taste or anything like that. Oh, yeah, there's right. been a conversation with them like, oh, well, I'm feeling bold colors today. Or and like, like, oh, like, and when, so <laughs> like when midway through the film, uh, Tony Collette's character goes from being a museum curator to an art advisor for some billionaire. And Rene Russo, I think it's Rene Russo, is telling her at some point, like, you're going to have uh, your buyer buy such and such many pieces from my collection. And Tony Collette says, oh, well, what if he doesn't like anything from your collection? And she's like, well, you're the art advisor, aren't you? So tell him that he likes it. Yep. It's it's exactly that. It does. It has nothing to do with the actual art. It's all about people determining the value of something on a completely arbitrary basis. Right. Which is where I would definitely like to bring in like my own thoughts and philosophy on that movement. Sure. Uh, as well, and Please I think uh, so much of that comes out of the dawn of the art card, where the the piece itself. Uh, acts as a philosophical discussion, but it is ambiguous enough that the the subject matter cannot be determined until the card is read about it. And that is one of the bigger signifiers of many postmodern pieces is their intent cannot be made clear until periphery is is consumed, right? Until you like read about the description of the art. And I think there are plenty of pieces that that succeed without that or that show their intent without. Like and plenty of postmodern art pieces as well, where the art card is not required. Like where the intent is very clear. Uh and the intent always doesn't have to be clear as well. But it is, I think, the prime mechanism for manipulating taste that can be used in that very community. Oh man, I kind of disagree. Um, mostly because I think it the the problem is more of art as a commodity under capitalism. Assuming art is cynically made is kind of problematic. I think because you know. Well, that's what I'm, I'm not saying it's cynically made. I'm saying it's it's problematic because that is one of the mechanisms in which it can be utilized as a commodity. Because if it can be be made to describe how you choose, if it can be like paired to what philosophy you desire, then you can you can use it to sell in whatever environment you choose. I think a lot of art is cynically made too. Yeah, yes. well and I but the problem I think though is assuming it's cynically made. Sure. I agree and, with that. You know, like no, yeah, a lot of artists put their soul into work and just because some people might not think it's good, even if they have to read the art card to realize it's good that doesn't put the value on things. You know, it's the well, idea of like, under capitalism, art has a price tag and is a commodity to be bought and sold is the problem. Well, I think there's you know, also... Art isn't a true expression because there's a value on expression, which is really 
right. kind of fucked but up. But I think there's I think there's also the problem of something being considered art or of quality just because it's hanging in a gallery or a museum. Right, because of it's, the philosophy you tie to it. It's because yeah, itself. when you when you walk into that space, you're expecting to see art. So anything that come that is put before you is immediately art. It's the it's the fucking pile of garbage bags in John Malkovich's studio. John Don Don is in his his studio. He's so he's expecting to see art. So he sees garbage bags on the floor and thinks it is art. It's it's that expectation of what you're being introduced to because of the space that you're in that I think and I think that those pieces can be made like with positive intent as well. I think I think it's a um Absol- it's no, a absolutely. side effect of like that community. Like in uh I just I just think of things like the the image set on like Twitter or Instagram or whatever, where like somebody is in a contemporary art museum and they take off their glasses and set them down on the floor next to the wall and then stand back and take pictures of people taking pictures of their glasses on the floor. It's just that those you know, those people are in that space conditioned to think that everything that they are seeing is art because if it's in a gallery it must be right and then how do you you place a value on that like how do you right. and it and that comes down to like, like if a collector if a collector walked in there some rich collector and said oh i love those glasses on the floor that piece is is it it's, it's genius personally. i'll i'll pay five million dollars for it right you know? because of our x art card reasons like, right it's it, because it, yeah it's like oh but if you spoke to me and you saw the glasses on my face you wouldn't offer to buy them off my face for five million dollars it's because i set them up against the wall between two other pieces of art that have art cards you know and what i will also say is i'm a you know like I'm i'm a technical artist my skills are based in realism and the price tag affiliated with my work is based on technicality but i don't think that's the only way and i do very much so enjoy walking through a museum and being philosophical and looking at sure totally ponderous yeah so i I do want to say that like that like it's not something that like keeps me up at night or really bothers me in the community and it's not something i see as something that needs to change or whatever else yeah and i think i think the idea of materialism is kind of bullshit sometimes i mean look at outsider art for example you know works by people who may not have been traditionally skilled but have put their heart and soul into a work who's to say that's lesser art you know just it's, because it's, i think it doesn't have as it much ultimately friendship to it i think if you're in a dance competition and you put your heart and soul into it but you still trip and hit your face then you should get a lower score that's like that's i don't think heart point. and soul is I think heart and soul heart and soul is important. I, mean, I think it is an important the, factor. The problem there is the rating aspect of it. Why do why does it have to be rated? Why does it have to be commodified like that? It's art. Well, I think you know, that you're making it a commodity. That's the the end thing. I, I about think it. the the problem there is the the capitalistic environment that it it has to exist in. You can't exactly it just exactly. Out of that's what I'm, I'm trying to get down. Like to, you is know? is like, like well, you're that's the problem with capitalism. Like not a problem with 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 money in art specifically. And the funny thing like, is... Because you have to treat... This movie plays into those capitalistic themes a lot. You know, with uh, Rene oh, sure. Russo's character, she started in the scene as, like, a punk artist who is super anti-capitalist. Yeah, the she's, whole a, she's a punk rocker, yeah. Was, was her being against the snotty art world. It was the name and of her old punk band, yeah. And then she just fell for it, you know? 
Um, and even David Diggs, you know, says, you know, like you used to have some good art before you fell into the the world and became self parody. Yep. And I think that really emphasizes kind of the ideas where and also on top of that, early on we see a piece called Hobo Man, which is a robotic hobo. Dressed as Uncle Sam. Which is yeah. fucking rad. Like, who, the effects are dope. It looks so cool. Who throws out quips and stuff like that. And it's just like... the these, I used to own my these, own railway. Yeah, these ideas of anti-capitalism are so strong in the art world, yet they clash so hard with the elitism yeah. and kind of the no, that's upper-class like, snobbery. The, of, the hypocrisy of, of Hobo Man is a great yeah. example of that. Yeah, like, so much of the, the art in the modern art community, exactly, like, acts as commentary on... Or commentary against capitalism, but in itself is capitalistically few that that being said i i do i I do want to i do want to go back and provide a counterpoint to something you said a couple of minutes ago ben i i'm in full agreement about the commodification of art and putting a price tag on it being inherently an issue that being said i don't think rating and scoring art is necessarily a problem uh important to consider that we are on a show right now where we rate movies every single week and we'll but my my point is is that in the art world where there is so much to be consumed whether it is uh literature or music or film or uh you know visual art in a museum there's so 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 much of it and it's impossible to consume all of it so you like to have people whose opinions that you respect to give you an idea of what might be for you and yeah, what might yeah, not yeah. be. Well, it's, think, it's not like that. There, not, there is not, aggregatory taste. Not I, to say that it should be the gospel truth. I think this movie does a great job emphasizing that point. Yes. With more. You know, yes, more is the art critic character. Yes. You know, we see in the movie, while he's having a relationship with Josephina, well, first off, he hates Hobo Man. Leading to Hobo Man just being stored it's because in a it's storage derivative. container. Yeah, for X reasons. Yeah. And also, on top of that, we see Josephina's ex-boyfriend. Uh, Josephina tells Morph to trash his work. Right, to go and, to his show and give it a bad review. And he does, and that personally affects the boyfriend. You know, he crashes his car and goes into a coma. Right. Really showing the direct effect of putting an external value onto someone's internal expression. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's kind of a bigger theme that's kind of important. But also, but also that is not necessarily solely the fault of the person who is critiquing it. It's also on the people who listen to that person's critique and take it as the gospel truth. Any any sort of critique, I think you have to take with a grain of salt. You can have critics that you listen to who you largely agree with because your your tastes overlap, but just because somebody tells you that something is or is not good doesn't mean that you will or will not like it. And Morph even says as much later on when he said, I liked the dude's work, but you told me I I did that for you and look at what happened, you know, but also it's because the 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 snobbish higher art society 
takes Morph's reviews as the law, so they don't even give somebody else a chance. So it's 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 a it's a two sided thing. It's not the blame is not all on the person critiquing. It's also on the people who are listening to. Yeah, well, critique. and I'll say too, as you know, as a review show, listen to our reviews. You know, listen to what we're saying. Don't just. Uh, skip forward towards the ratings. Like, well, right, and that's also why I I generally say at the end of our reviews, uh, see it or don't. You know, like especially oh, yeah. on stuff that we're lukewarm on or that we dislike. Uh, you know, I think we we try to do our best to lay out why we don't like it or mm-hmm. why we do. But ultimately, you as the listener, you have to make that decision for yourself. And if you think that your tastes align with ours. Then you know if you if we say we don't like something, then maybe you won't like it. But you won't know until you watch it for yourself. So see it or don't. You know that's that's what I always, that's why I like and this to say. movie worth watching. I think yeah, so. For sure. I mean I, the conversation we've already had. You know, out of it has been has been pretty gratifying. One thing I would like to add, just to put a cap on that last part too, is the inherent problem isn't putting a price tag on artwork. I think that that's sort of needed. But I think it's a problem. The problem is putting price tags on things, right? Like the issues with with capitalism that you have, right, Ben? I don't make that clear because, like, I think that yeah. that the art community is probably the one of the worst places to to make that the first battleground. Oh yeah, for absolutely. Because, like, because so the artists are the ones who suffer. Yeah, like ideologically, like that. Mm-hmm. you know. And and when you remove the technical like scoring aspect of it, like you make it more difficult for artists to actually like to succeed in that community and you make it easier for like these periphery to to control like and those with the money to control the environment you have like objective like aspects of taste then you put the control back into the artist's hands yeah like and you know like and because it is a competitive industry regardless whether like there is a a technical judging factor involved it's still competitive no yeah artists are gonna be made to fail but if you, like any other field of study, like bring a science into it, you allow those artists to succeed. You you allow them to apply like themselves. Definitely. And there is, you know, and that, that is that is proven. It's it's because we live in a world of consumption rather than creation. And the fact that you these know? people who don't make the art ultimately determine its value, like that is the root of the problem, I think. Well, For, see, that's interesting because the Medici were the one who funded the Renaissance. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a problem that they have. I think specifically the problem that they have the most say. What I would counter with is that somebody like Vincent van Gogh, who was completely underappreciated in his time, died in poverty, truly prolific artist. And now his paintings are, you know, hundreds of years after his death, his paintings are worth multi-million dollars, are a commodity, and other people who own them get rich off of them by determining that value and selling them, whereas Van Gogh himself died insane and with with no money. Yes, I think think there are a number of additional factors involved in that. First off, because of Van Gogh's depression, he was very difficult to work with yes and so he was unable to sell himself and his own work regardless i think if van gogh had been more charismatic he could have pulled off much more. my problem is that um, other people are making millions off yeah of there, it's a problem i agree with I years also, after his death yes. and i also feel that and this is this is a hot take and this is something i i don't unlike the other things i've said i i see more as a personal point but i've seen star night in person and 
it didn't do as much for me as it does for most people. That's a hot take. Like, that and is a hot take. I, I think it is a great painting, and I think his work is very powerful. But is it as technically proficient? Is it Should it be the val- as valued as some of the best work ever created See, on this like planet? I, like I that I disagree with. Like I mentioned before, I think it's a problem of we live in a society of consumption rather than creation where consumption drives the creation rather than creation driving consumption. You know what I mean? Where rather than having art made for art's sake and people consuming the best of it, we're getting to the point where art is being made based on what's most consumable or what sells the best right. or stuff like that. Well, large manufacturing... And that's a problem of capitalism right. at well, its core. It's, it's a problem endemic of, of a couple of other factors as well. And that's uh, it's also large manufacturing of imagery it's and, and replication of imagery. What is the value of an original when I can have a printed piece or a gicle that is unnoticeably different? Um, or, 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 or a replicated piece. Like, well, it's and funny it's, because they actually talk about that in this movie with do. John Malkovich's character, where he's talking about having like a replica factory that only makes reprints and replicas of his work, right. and he's talking about how soulless it is mm-hmm. in comparison to the actual work. In, and in comparison to the studio where he creates the originals. Yeah. And it's, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, and it's something that I, I think about regularly i mean my my work is almost i mean these days it's exclusively digital apart from a few sketches here and there so there is no original piece i don't create a tangible piece of art it is almost exclusively a replicant you know there's the original photoshop file but that's not exactly there's no no different yeah yeah like you can separate the layers cool but like that's it and is that a determining factor does that reduce value from it i, I think it might like i, I think it, it does like uh, to a certain degree like also its goals are different in its creation like it and its its purpose is, is different and it's set to cr- fill a different niche absolutely because i mean you could you could create your work digitally and then make a single print of it and never release the file anywhere online and have your one print of it and that would raise its value or you put it out there where you know people can pass it around and share it and that diminishes the value but being seen more you know it, it it's a it's a very weird way to look at art in the digital age yeah. but and then where do you monetize well, it you know right like exactly i yeah. think rolling this back up into you know directness with the movie i think this movie does a great job emphasizing those points with Deese's work yeah you know i think the whole idea of Deese dying and wanting all of his work burned and it becoming a commodity on the market. And as that becomes a commodity, everyone who greedily tries to make money off of it dies one after another. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that really that, emphasizes that, yeah. you know, that point. No, that was, that was my whole point with the Van Gogh thing too. It's like, you're, you're absolutely right. D specified in his will that he wanted all of his art destroyed. And when Josephina goes into his apartment, he had been in the process of destroying it when he died. There are, you know, fragments of paintings in the fireplace and she in a solely, uh, self-serving, uh, endeavor 
takes it all and cl- and claims it. She is the new owner, and, and she becomes rich because of that. And I think it's really interesting because every death in this movie, every kill, is done by art. Yeah, it's you all know? it's all done Whether by it's the, the paintings, paintings uh, the the chimps in the painting pulling the guy in, or the sphere. Um, oh yeah, with Tony Collette, Tony Collette. The, mm-hmm. and uh, and then at the very end. Uh, Rene Russo's velvet buzzsaw tattoo on the back back of her neck. Yeah, or uh, even turning Josephina into a real buzzsaw, right? Consumed by yeah. paint, you which know? is cool. So it's not just the D's paintings; it's it's that D's is sort of like his his spirit is able to infiltrate art, right? And, like, it's, yeah. it's, well, we we it. see we see multiple times that it's not just his work. Most of the time, specifically. it is mm-hmm. Yeah, like the 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 painting of the monkeys in the gas station, the or, yeah. or the or the tattoo, or, or the, spear, the spear, or Hobo Man, like right. or, or the the graffiti gallery actually i don't think it's ever Deez's art is it ever no yeah yeah now that you mention it his paintings never it's almost as if it's periphery interesting know, yeah Deez's work is kind of causing an uprising in that idea you know it it's almost a work in itself of you know causing an upheaval against the art world it's funny because right at the end of the movie spoiler um, I, we've already talked. We're about well that. in yeah, spoilers. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, the only time we see Deez's work being handled without consequence is at the end of the film when a man on the street is selling Deez's art to people on the street and for five dollars, purely yeah. going off of aesthetics of the art. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's art based down to its working class craftsmanship roots rather than you know these elitist. Like you said, art card pretentious. Yeah, I exactly. love. And, I and love that's, it. that's the thing too. Is like it's it becomes a craft again. It becomes a trade. But like, once, but once again, it's still the the value of it is still being determined by somebody else because we see that the hobo who has acquired all of these because he took them out of the back of the guy's truck when he crashed into the gas station. The people are like, "Oh yeah, how much for this one?" He's like, five eh, dollars," and it's like guaranteed Deese put way more than five dollars worth of work into that painting. He put his own blood into that. He put it, yeah, he was making and other people's and other yeah, like he was he was making his paintings with blood and shit. But you know, it, it's just it's the polar opposite. You've got all of these fucking like culture vultures becoming millionaires off of his art after his death, and then at the end in the contrast is a bum selling stuff that he literally poured his soul into for five bucks a pop. Well, know? it's interesting, too, because, like, the value of those pieces being $5 are not as sort of up in the air. I mean, they've been burned severely as well, but, again, to some people that could add value. What I found interesting, I'm not sure if I agree with it or not, is that the film, the moral aspect of Dee's character is to respect the artist's intent, and it almost holds... By by way of punishment, it, it holds sort of the highest value over the artist's intent, which I don't always entirely agree with. The people are are slaughtered because they didn't adhere to the artist's intent. They didn't they didn't destroy the paintings, which is what the artist wanted. And personally, I I sort of disagree with that being the most vital aspect. I, I, think I do too. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's plenty of I I think that that artist's intent is is sort of secondary to the art itself. See, I agree with that, but I I disagree with that being the intention behind it. I think it was more of Deese working against art as a an investment commodity. 
you know, it's not a problem with art being bought and sold. It's art being bought and sold by a few for seven to eight figures. Well, but, but Deese, Deese wanted to destroy his paintings for, for personal reasons that had nothing to do with, with capitalism here or there. Like whether they made money or not was, I think, insignificant to Deese. Deese just wanted the paintings destroyed. But I think we do. I think we do see that them being sold on the street at the end kind of breaks the curse. I don't think we see it explicitly. Yeah, I but think, a lot I for so. for a lot of the times, like when we see characters looking at Deese's paintings in the movie, they the paintings move in some respect. They're they're they are animated in in some respect to show that they are haunted mm-hmm. or whatever. And at the end, when he's hanging the guy's hanging them up on the fence and the person comes by and buys one for five dollars, we get that long, slow zoom in on one of the paintings where it is completely static and it does not move. Mm-hmm. So I think you can interpret that as the the curse being absolutely being broken. That's how I think I you're right it. and that's yeah. how i took it no I, I think you're right about that and uh, and also because the homeless guy is selling the stuff to feed himself mm-hmm. five sell it for five bucks because he knows that he's a homeless guy and if he tries to get uh fifty thousand dollars for this painting people would laugh at him you know he's selling yeah, on the street he wants yeah. he wants to eat or he wants to go buy some drugs or some booze or whatever you know it's uh it's a survival thing, not not as a means to become hyper wealthy. So the intention of the the seller there is is also very different. And I I, I agree with your point on artist intent. We've talked about intent a lot on this show. Yeah. Um, that it is certainly a factor in appreciation of art, but hardly the only one. Uh, you know, you look at films like we always bring up in this regard with stuff like The Room. We were just talking about Tommy why so earlier before we started recording something like troll 2 the the charm of it of movies like that is that they were made they were made with the intention of being good films and they were so so many missteps that they become bad but the reason that they're bad good is because you you get that that intent that sincerity behind it which is really cool like so inherently the the moral of velvet buzzsaw isn't that like and and no, I, I agree with that. I think that is more poignant because like, I'm, and I'm I'm glad I'm glad to to think about that. Yeah. And, and and recognize that the the moral of Velvet Buzzsaw wasn't to adhere to Deese's. You know, I, yeah, I want don't to think... destroy those paintings because fuck those paintings are amazing and they shouldn't have been destroyed. Right. I, I don't think I don't think Velvet Buzzsaw is really about artist intent. It's it's about yeah, pu- no. it's about punishing people mm-hmm. who view art primarily as a commodity and not as art. And the people buy it on the street, like Ben said, because they appreciate the of it regardless of how much they pay for it the couple stops because they're moved by the piece and they're like oh yeah how much for that whereas all of our protagonists in this film are not so much moved by the aesthetic they are quote unquote you know because they are the tastemakers but it's more about what can i sell how can i get rich off of this i don't really give so much of a shit about the the, yeah and i mean at its core you know most of the time intent is unknowable 
Unless you have the artist there to tell you their intent. Yeah, yeah, it. exactly. Yeah, I think in this day, it's a little and bit easier even, to seek it out. You but, even yeah. look at people like J.K. Rowling, who have changed or Lucas, their yeah. quote-unquote yeah. intent with stuff all the time. Continuing to and, update you know, her like, canon. So ultimately, whatever you take out of it is, in my opinion, more important than the intent of the artist. I agree. That's why I, I find agree. movies where like, it may be schlocky, but entertaining, still successful, you know, because they oh, yeah. are, you know, entertaining and my takeaway from it was a good time, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. Um, But I think this movie does a great job of really kind of dissecting that idea yeah. and dissecting the art as a commodity yeah. idea in a really well, deep way. Most definitely. I think we've, we've, dedicated so much discussion time to it for sure as yeah. well and, and worthy uh, at absolutely that. But I, think, I think that but about puts a cap in it yeah yeah well, we're talking I about think, like effects and stuff i think it's i think oh it's yeah because i, I definitely want to Im- talk about effects oh for sure uh <laughs> i i'll just to to finish that out i think it's important for a film like this because this is one of those films where i think it's commentary and the the sort of more philosophical questions it raises are much better than the narrative content of the film because I think that ultimately without that the Velvet Buzzsaw would be an extremely vapid boring film it's it's value I think comes from these questions that we've I absolutely agree these questions that it has been making us ask and has made us wanted to want to discuss is the film's greatest strength. One I, thing I want to mention before we jump into effects, because I think effects are a great topic to talk about, but I want to talk about how both Nightcrawler and this movie, on their surface, can be viewed as very reactionary films. Yeah. Where, you know, Nightcrawler, I think, on the surface can be, you know, this is how fake news is started. And Velvet Buzzsaw can yeah. be very much... Oh, modern art, contemporary art is shit because, you know, it's just overvalued garbage. Whereas when you look deeper, they're both, you know, deconstructions of the problems of having capitalism infect both of these industries, whereas they're so profit-seeking that they kind of lose the uh, lose the original focus of what they're there for. Yeah, I agree. You know? And I think that's really important to inspect, and I think Dan Gilroy does a fantastic job of that. But what, uh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, just going to the effects. I think that was about that yeah, about yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. No, because there are a lot of capstone. there are a lot of really neat comparatives between the two films. And again, too, like last night after I'd finished um, uh, Nightcrawler, I didn't see the comparatives until you started bringing them up. And uh, but they are they are there, and it's it's a lot of it is just in in execution, which is neat. Like the subject matter is very different. But yeah, to get into the effects, um, and why actually I disagree with the statements y'all made a moment ago about the film only really holding value at its. Uh... I don't misquote me. I did not say its only value. I said by far its greatest value. Okay, yeah, 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 ye
I thoroughly enjoyed the the kill scenes in this movie. Like, I thought they were fucking great. I want to talk about that because I honestly, this is a hot take probably, but I found the horror elements to be the weakest part of this movie. I, from a horror perspective, yeah. I mean, I was giggling through the, the scenes, and I think that was the intent. Like, I was never anxious or worried about these people. It's well, no, it's that, because you hate them. I, I yeah. mostly meant that within the CG effects. I didn't hate the moving paintings, but I found them a little corny. I think it... Well, I think the method of approach was very different scene to scene. So I think that there were some specific ones where that was the case, but I think there are others where it was very I think there's some sequences where it worked better than others. I I did, I really liked where the, the delivery guy is like taking them wherever and he's got the... The portrait sitting on the seat next to him and it turns its it turns its head to look at him i thought that worked pretty well uh i i thought i thought the monkeys i thought the monkeys were were a little goofy there were several extremely subtle ones that i thoroughly enjoyed like with the two children the painting at the beginning of the cut looks impressionistic and then by the end of it 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 gains on details of realism yeah and i thought that it, was fantastic it's, it's exquisite and it's extremely well done yeah now, there's some cg that's a little weak um i think is what you wanted to bring up yeah as well. like uh when they, she first goes into disa's apartment and you have that painting of that portrait of a person who's like looking away and then his eyes shift towards her see i think i think it was hokey and I kind of liked that about it. Like, yeah, any of the time where the CG me, was bad, like with the monkeys and stuff, like, it just made me feel like Jumanji. It didn't Like, it, it made me feel like... It made... didn't seem bad, it's just that none of the, none of the portraits were hyper-realistic, so the movement was a little bit cartoonish. Yeah. And inherently because I think that that is how I would envision those paintings moving. I don't think the CG was really yeah, bad. I, I, I think it was that. a bit cartoonish, and maybe as the problem is Nightcrawler is one of my favorite movies of all time. Top ten for me. So I was primed for the Dan Gilroy realism and the thematic material that we got in spades. The kind of over-the-topness of that stuff kind of, took away from I mean the I themes. guess but also and I think that's I think that's might be the the inherent factor here I think it's worth bringing up is that I hadn't seen Nightcrawler beforehand so I wasn't going in with an expectation of realism or oh, anything definitely. but I, and but I, think I had the, the film wasn't intending realism either I think that's what I had but I had seen Nightcrawler and I I also like that didn't bother me too much just because in for the subject matter it's in it's inherently different like Nightcrawler is in a lot of ways, hyper-realistic, but the Velvet Buzzsaw is about fucking haunted paintings. Like, there's yeah. the element of the supernatural, so I was expecting I was expecting that mm-hmm. stuff. And I think it's I, just right at home in that premise. Yeah. I think, I think, I almost wish it was just done darker and more realistic. Maybe that's just me loving Nightcrawler so much, but, like, the themes of the movie are so serious and heady and dense that seeing it reduced to but i mean it's yeah the themes are are serious if you really get into them but also it's a very funny movie yeah Yeah, yeah, the dialogue the dialogue is very quippy you know like there's there's a a lot there's a lot of like laugh out loud moments in velvet buzzsaw and 
I, I think there's some of that in Nightcrawler too, but I think they're it's more I think direct. They're, they're in just Velvet Buzz in Nightcrawler. I, you're you're giggling almost out of fear, like yeah. in a lot of and it's it it truer to like your traditional black comedy in that sense. Like it's like oh this is you know like oh yeah. this is pretty iffy. Oh man, is he gonna stab next? <laughs> thematically, but, yeah. thematically the two films share a lot, but tonally yeah. they're very and, different. And like someone's living is extremely important and serious, but in the same breath too, like when it comes to seriousness, like someone's life being at stake is is much higher and more grand, which is much more the case in Nightcrawler. Like, it is about violence. It's a movie about violence, you know, and how it's depicted. Yeah, it's Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal profiting off of the the death the very or, yeah, yeah. Of, of other people, you know. Whereas Buzzsaw, like, the, the stakes are much lower. Like, they, in mo- in postmodern art, like, the, the stakes are a lot lower. Well, right, well, and because they go out of their way to make these characters detestable, like I said. So when mm. when you see them die, it doesn't have the same gravitas as something like Nightcrawler because you want them to die, you well, know? Yeah, you, and, want them to, you want to see them punished. And this movie has very much the structure of, like I was saying before, Final Destination. Right. Where you know yes, inevitably absolutely. a lot of these characters are going to die. You're just waiting to see how they do it. And you're kind of rooting for them to die at a certain point. Which I don't mind. I just, man, I don't know. It sounds like I, a personal preference. I, yeah, I think it's a personal preference. I just prefer the approach of Nightcrawler I think, I think my, more. I think my problem with the horror in this movie is that... It's so secondary that when the supernatural stuff does happen, when people do die, it's it is tonally very different from what the rest of the movie is doing, and it's also relatively brief. Yeah, and I think if it had been uh, more like I, if I it think, had been darker and more legitimate, I think it would have been even more tonally disparate too. I I like, don't know I don't know about that. I I don't know I don't know if I agree with that. I I liked the hokiness at times, and I I liked the the quippiness and the and the the comedy but it did make the horror aspects uh stand out as as kind of inconsistent i guess um in terms of the rest of the film so i think i think that was one of my problems with it i don't have a problem with any of the scenes themselves in fact i like a couple of them quite a bit like i i thought Tony Collette getting her arm ripped off in that that giant yeah, mirrored sphere. It was short and sweet. Like the same and have have all the have the blood yeah. have Just her blood spurting out, out of all of the well, other the, holes. The best part about it was the aftermath. Yes, though. like having that was her lying so there and people in the museum thinking that that was part of the exhibit, which just goes back to my point about anything that's in a museum is immediately art. Uh, no, that was one of my favorite parts too, and that there were like school children like walking around, and the first time that. Any Anybody thought that there was something wrong was when Coco finally showed up yeah. and she screamed. Who knew that wasn't part of the exhibit, right. whereas everyone else just assumed. Yeah, I thought um, that was great. You know, if anything, I think that was maybe one one issue I might have had with it um, that kind of ties in is the the consequence of death in this film is very is varied. When um, Gyllenhaal's character and also um, 
uh, oh, she's covered by the graffiti. What is the oh the, Josephina? The Josephina and Morph, their their deaths have little consequence to the plot, like. And they're sort of no one reacts to their deaths. Well, like, I mean, at that in, point, in movie, at that point, they're the loose ends. Everybody yeah. else has been which, has been killed. Which, which is interesting because, like, they're also the characters like the film put the most focus on. I I kind of agree with you there. Yeah, and I he and Gyllenhaal's is she just has his neck snapped. It's not by even, by Hobo Man. Like, and I, Hobo Man's awesome, but I, I was kind of hoping like there's gonna be a little see, something I, more I with Hobo Man. I like that though. I kind of like that the characters that are the most self important. Are really the most oh, inconsequential okay. deaths. You know, okay, you know, that's a fun way to look at it. Yeah, that kind of that that. sways me a little bit. I, I I do enjoy that they were the most self important, and yeah. they did kind of get just chucked aside at the end. I but yeah. I kind of agree, and I think that from this discussion, we're all in agreement that the horror elements of the film are kind of disparate from the rest of the film. I think. Mm, I, I don't think that they're disparate. I think that they they fit in just fine. It's it's fairly comedic and and hokey, and I think that those sequences are comedic and hokey. I think in terms of, and I don't but like you said, but in terms you... of theme, they work super well. In terms of execution, it left some to be desired. But wouldn't you me. wouldn't you also say Cleveland that like you're just you're just saying that some of the deaths don't have consequences in. That are like yeah, but then, visible consequence, but wouldn't you consider events having lack of consequence being a disparate element of a narrative? Well, I if did something, feel that way until Ben happens... dissuaded my point on that, and I and I agree with Ben. Like, and so I don't feel that way anymore <laughs> in the last five seconds. So sure. Okay. So if anything, that makes me feel even more certain because yeah, that was yeah. the one thing I had for it. But no, I think I I also loved all those sequences as well. And again, that doesn't have anything to do with their, them being disparate or not, but. I, I did. I did feel like they they equally provided commentary, and they were they were comedic. I think because we we're running a horror podcast, I think we all might have gone into this film expecting and wanting more horror, and those points not being met. But I think that this film supplied everything that it went out to. It, it intended to, to set yeah, out. yeah. I think I think thematically it worked super well. And again, it comes down to personal preference. But I was wishing the execution was a little more serious. You know, but meanwhile, I I had no problem. Yeah, 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 and I think that's just being primed by Nightcrawler being one of my favorite movies. And I, I think, honestly, I think I anything. wish, I think I wish that it had not necessarily been more serious, but it had just been a little bit more of a horror film. So Whether, I think it sounds like both of y'all sort of wanted something a little bit darker. And I mean, but not not even necessarily darker because horror can be very hokey and corny, and I I don't think that. Tonally, I needed this film to be darker. I just think I needed it to be more of a horror film. Keep the hokiness, that's fine. But just make it more thematically a horror film, I Sprinkle think. Sprinkle in the horror elements a bit more often. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. That's, have, have that's that, the Have that be more of a, of a, of a through line. Okay. Yeah, See, that's this, what I'm saying. That aspect of disparity, I can agree with. Yeah. I was, I was thinking, I was like, oh, well, you know, they're both kind of hokey and comedic. That's not disparate. But there is the, the, the horror element itself not necessarily existing anything other than the kill scenes. Yes. I mean, there's a little bit of it outside yeah, of the kill scenes, like... but also like a lot, like m a big plot point is that Morph is working on uh, a book about Dees. He has the exclusive rights to write a book, and a lot of his investigation into 
who Deese is as a person and as an artist is very much brushed under the rug. And yeah, I guess you could say that that's Morph not caring. He's just trying to write a book and make a profit and make his money. But I think that's where a lot of the horror through line is because, yeah, the Deese's soul does have some sort of supernatural power that is possessing the paintings. And I think that, that it, that's just kind of forgotten about for a lot of the movie. Yeah. Um, for these, you know, very very snarky, quippy interactions between these high society art people that are just so repulsive. It's just like that, that, that stuff I feel like gets kind of lost. The only reason I give that okay is because I feel like Morph doesn't want to devalue the art by exposing that at all. Yeah, yeah, but it's ultimately in his self interest more than anything. Well, that that's fine, but that doesn't mean that we, as the viewer of the film, cannot experience more of his investigation. Whether he chooses to reveal it to other people so he doesn't devalue the art, that doesn't matter. Mm. But use him as the lens to let us, as the artists, see. Did you like those scenes when he was investigating? I did. Uh, I when he went to the uh, what was it VA hospital? Yeah, no, I I did like that stuff, but also it seemed so secondary. Yeah, and because those are the times where outside of the kill scenes, where it started to feel like a horror film to me. I don't know. I think I think that Dee's was given a pretty extensive background across the board. Like we 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 have a full understanding of his life and and his motivation for creating his paintings by the end of the film. Like little is that's is given left. to us. That's given to us an exposition. I, yeah, I actually agree with Cleveland. I I feel like all of the investigation stuff by more of what felt like exposition dumps. And that's the reason I didn't want more yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I kind of preferred that it was done like largely in dialogue because it, it kept the allure, it, it kept it kept Dee's mysterious. Uh, you know, like we we gain a lot of our understanding of Dee's through periphery, and it's, I, it just comes down to, to do something. It just comes down to the problem that there's too many other characters to get involved with, so you can't have morph investigating and discovering things and puzzling things out and having letting us get into his head because there's too many other characters well, that we also and, have and to get that would have to. i think detracted from like the allegorical themes I, this this film set out to achieve I, like, I don't think is, i don't think so necessarily because once again you look I at, but, you look but, at something but, like what i what i will say is i think when, and this is cool because I think it's a point that we can all agree on is that an Apartment 16 movie would be fucking rad. And a film a film that, that did focus on a singular artist and you know, wasn't an allegorical and movie. was focused on a core horror plot line about a horror painter would be awesome. And I'm I'm here for that and I agree with that wholeheartedly. Let's let's write a screenplay. But but I don't think that's what this film was trying to be or trying to do. But no. I, w- I, I would love that. I would love to see that in a movie. But I don't think this movie was remiss for not having those things. I I just I'm just remarking on the disparity that I saw. Like I I sure. think that the the different things that it did were good, but also like the need to go between them. I think is a is a downfall of the film. Ultimately, I I think that 
you know, if it was going to be more of a horror film, that it would detract from a lot of the commentary and the, the themes of the art world and art as a commodity, but then it would have been a very different film, whereas a lot of the commentary is sort of detracted by the horror stuff. And you I, know? I actually agree with you, Tease. Like, I think the problem was the story wasn't driven forward enough in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think some of that some more of that stuff would have helped with his investigation. But the problem is, in practice, the investigation stuff were mostly exposition dumps. But that's, but that's what in I'm practice. saying. That's, that's what I'm saying is that if there had been more focus on that stuff, then it wouldn't have had to be exposition dumps. Yeah. And therefore, it wouldn't have been as well, boring. I th- yeah, I think if it was more focused directly on Deese's work and the effect, and the discovery of that stuff. I agree, it would have worked slightly better. I think it was kind of diverted by personal narcissism of characters, which I think thematically works for the movie. I think it plays an important part in showing the narcissism of these characters and self-absorption, but I think it undermines some of the directness of the Deese I, plot line. I think ultimately, I definitely would have wanted less horror in this movie. I think it. I think it ultimately comes down to what I said earlier in the show that I wish this film had a central character that could be the the through line from beginning to end, and I think that it didn't have it made it inconsistent at times. I I actually agree. I think the movie was slightly undermined by it. Altman-esque ensemble structure. Yeah. I disagree, but again, for personal reasons, you know, I just yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I like I like a, a a narrative that's more about the now and just kind of flits from character to character. Definitely. I don't I don't mind uh, not having as much of a through line. I like I like just being in the moment. And I think I brought personally, I brought a lot of that from Nightcrawler as personal preference, just knowing what mm-hmm. I liked from Dan but Gilroy. I will so. say, I think that most people will agree with you guys. Like I think I think that that's very true, and I think that uh, especially like I think a Western audience will will particularly agree well. That's with that. that's why I think that for me, Nightcrawler is a much stronger film, is because it it has that focus of a central character. I would I would agree that it's a uh, and again personal preference. You know, like I yeah. I, well, th- I would I would feel like well, it's a yeah, different you, film. You have an, I, I don't you think have an interesting take because you saw Velvet Buzzsaw first and. That's why I'm super interested in hearing your opinion on this, you know, because you don't have Nightcrawler influencing how you perceive this movie, mm-hmm. which I think is really important for our podcast as a view. So yeah, I'm glad that I'm I glad ended up, because I almost did. I, we, I think I, I almost, we talked about it on the podcast, I think, last week. Like, I almost yeah. did watch Nightcrawler first, and I wanted to go in with a different opinion and look at... <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I'm like glad how yeah, yeah. different that was. And I'm, I, I am too. I, I, I agree as well, because yeah, that can... That can expectation can that being said i'm also glad we we went and watched nightcrawler oh night after velvet buzzsaw absolutely because honestly i did not see how numerous the comparisons between the two are until you brought it up ben and then when we were watching nightcrawler i was able to look at it through that lens and i do 
I do think that thematically they are extremely similar, Very similar. I think, and that they I, yeah. they they can and do work as as sister pieces to yes. each other. And I and I absolutely do think that you know both of the films are fruit, and you know one's an apple and one's an orange. And yeah. I I like oranges more than apples, or maybe I can't decide, and I like both yeah. the same. Yeah. But honestly, like when it comes to films, like I I will say too, like I think that I I might also prefer Nightcrawler between the two films. But I'd probably rate them the same. Interesting. All right. Uh, yeah, let's rate. Cleve, why don't you start? Yeah, um, I loved it. I, I loved everything about this film. I giggled all the way through it. I loved the kill sequences. I, I thought they were, they were fun. I was never scared during this movie. Uh, just usually wowed by like a, like a cool idea or by really, really intricate writing and dialogue and execution from the actors. Like, there are a couple, like, sequences where Jake Hall just gives a look, and it says just so much. The acting in this like, movie is phenomenal. Yeah, we didn't talk everyone. much We didn't talk much about that, mm-hmm. but everybody delivers yeah. a, a stellar like, performance. I don't... The, the few places where I did... I, I, I feel like I, I was finding, like, a, a, a niche in the armor of this film. Like, even then, I think that I was sort of swayed once or twice. So I, honestly, like my, my opinion of this film went up like during, during the course of, of this uh, podcast and it was high going in. I really like this movie. I'm go with your heart. Go with your heart. I, I love this film. Five out of five. I loved it. I, I, Hell yeah. I thought it was great. Hell yeah, bitch. Five out of five. Okay. All right. right. Good. Ben. Yeah. Um, well, I am not quite as hot on it. I love its thematic material. Like I mentioned before, it's very much a sister film to Nightcrawler, and Nightcrawler is one of my all-time favorite movies. I think the idea of uh, looking at how capitalism affects art and the the clash between art as expression versus art as commodity is really, really thought-provoking and interesting in this movie. I think the movie is undermined a little bit by the silliness of the kills and the nature of ensemble structures. However, the acting is incredibly strong. It's full of interesting, fun characters. It's full of thought-provoking material. Yeah, I'm going to go with a four out of five. I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, uh, I think a good way to sort of put a blanket over my opinions on this film is that uh, conceptually and philosophically, I think it's really excellent. The ideas that it posits and the things that it encourages you to think about and consider, especially if you are somebody who appreciates art or is an artist yourself, uh, it has a lot of value with those kinds of ideas. Uh, I think its weaknesses for me are almost entirely structurally based I I think that just the packaging of what it's trying to say is a bit sloppy and disparate at times for me, Um, and I I did find it a little bit uh, bloated with some of its characters and stuff like that, and I wish it had a little bit more focus, but like I said, that's all structural. structural. Ultimately, I enjoyed this film, and I think it's it's worth watching, especially, uh, like I said, if you are an artist or somebody who has a great appreciation for art. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five. And uh, so that will give Velvet Buzzsaw an average of 4.2 out of five pods. 
Um, so yeah, check it out. I I think this movie has been getting a lot of really bad reviews. Yeah, speaking of which, I'm not surprised. Um, speaking of which, we did predict this movie. Yeah, the Rotten in our Tomatoes 2019 preview episode. Tease and I, you, you we, we tied, tied for yeah. this episode. Um, because we predicted the Rotten Tomatoes score to be something like 85 or yeah. 86. Did I highball it or lowball it? You, you highballed, highballed it. You, yeah, you predicted 91. Oh, man, I should have done that. And it turned out to be 65. See, I should Which is shockingly low. Yeah. It is low. Wow. I expected gracious. it to be, well, I mean, we obviously expected it to be higher. I think it's, it's average rating on uh, Letterboxd right now is like 2.7 out of 5. Um, a lot of the people who I follow on Letterboxd who have seen it are giving it like two, two and a half, uh, which which I think is is harsh. And I, I'm wondering if that is uh, just because of how insufferable a lot of the characters They're are. They're all morphs. They're Anyone all morphs, this, yeah. This movie a shitty rating is just a morph. <laughs> well, I, 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 I think I... <laughs> I I do I do think that if you're not used to viewing art in in a critical way that this this film can be very inaccessible. Oh, just and I, used I to think like... it I think it feels yeah. it can it can definitely feel a lot like it's talking at you rather than to you. So I, I actually understand why a lot of people don't like it. I disagree. I I think it has a lot more value than a lot of people are giving it, but I understand yeah. where folks are coming well, from. I think that a lot of people won't will will miss that the 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 film in a lot of ways is a commentary on pretension yeah. and they'll just see it as pretentious. Exactly. Like, yeah, 100%. Like, and I, that that would be my biggest concern uh on that front. Like the movie is absolutely making fun of like the 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 overuse of five dollar words and like like hyper academic totally like, 100%. and i think it's so easy to read this movie like i said before as reactionary comment on oh contemporary art modern yeah. art is shitty these people are all pretentious yeah. but, but more like, than that it's about you know the problem of art as commerce under capitalism yeah and like you know like to me like if if someone does have a problem with a film for those reasons i i would i would posit that that's like that's like saying that uh nightcrawler glorifies sociopaths you know like <laughs> like it's it's commentary on yeah. it like it's not it's not um you know like languishing in it for for anything but the right reasons yeah but i can i can definitely see it and again for you know like uh i think uh, it's just like western audiences like for for those same points um and again people who who aren't familiar with that that demographic you know like aren't familiar with like contemporary yeah, well, artists and, like aren't aren't gonna enjoy like them getting ripped apart as much as i do yeah you know much yeah, like absolutely. much like nightcrawler if you're just reading for the what you're not gonna get as much out of it as if you're looking for the why why they are like this why the system is like this it you have to look a little bit deeper to get the point that this movie i think is trying to make yeah and i think it makes it very well and it's a very good absolutely. one and we we, we yeah, yeah agree on that but I, I but i can see why that would be missed by most people and i'm curious too because i haven't like looked at any review or like read into any reviews um I'm keen to now. I'm. I, I want to see if that is why. I would like to see why people don't like this movie that much. I'm sure it is those reasons, but it, maybe I'm. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe it's for for 
other purposes. But I will say also uh, about this film, like not being that horrifying of a movie, its title is Velvet Buzzsaw. I think that there's there's a lot of, especially with like the, the name Saw, there's a lot of connotation. And I think the expectations going into this film just off of the title are going to be. Probably I mean, I guess it's built. It's visceral. built as a horror film, so like I I don't know how much of that there is, but it is a horror film. It just does not lean on its elements of horror. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um. But anyway, Ben, you had a new segment. Yeah. That you wanted to debut. Welcome to the hot take zone, where I throw out a hot take and we uh, talk about it a little bit. Can I try an intro for you? Yeah, please do. All right. You find yourself in a strange room, an academic circle. Every point you bring up is followed with a counterpoint. All you can see is disagreement. Nothing makes sense here. You have entered the hot take zone. That was a good one. All right, what's our hot take for this okay. week, Ben? My hot take of the week is PG-13 horror movies are one of the greatest things that happened to horror movies, and it popularized and uh, made the genre more accessible to the masses and was an ultimate good for the genre as a whole. That is a hot fucking take, one that I... I can dig it. I just, I know, I... Really Let's talk about it a little bit. I think that even though PG-13 horror movies can dilute the visceral intensity of a horror movie, I think the limitations can strengthen horror movies sometimes. I think there is a, um, though the two are often married, there is a key difference between accessibility and dumbing down. I think that very often the two can affect each other and go hand in hand. Usually when something is dumbed down, it becomes more accessible. But you can make something accessible and still quality. That's where my, any of my problems would come up is in the, the dumbing down or in just the lowering of quality. But but when it comes to it being the, the rating and being accessible, I think that's fine. Well, and I think look at a movie like Jaws, for example. I think the horror of the implied and of the imagination can be way more horrifying than horror of the actualized or the visual or represented. Sure. Yeah, but we should we should put this out there immediately that the MPAA is a hackneyed association yes. and that ultimately ratings for films is a totally bullshit arbitrary process. Well, it's it's largely um, fueled by like old school puritanical values that have little little to do with by the correct Catholics. correct yeah. yes i know so that that we got to get out there immediately but that being said i i think that what contributes to a r-rated movie over a pg-13 rated movie is not just showing gore or violence it's also conceptual there are certain concepts and ideas and themes that are quote-unquote R-rated and not PG-13 rated. And that's not to say that there can't be good PG-13 horror movies, but I think that things that are truly horrifying, things that are truly disturbing, that provoke the 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 chills that you get or the the sense of unease is 
stuff that is usually not quote unquote PG thirteen. See, that's an excellent point, and one that I didn't think you were going to the angle you were going to cover from as well. And it's the same issue I have with a lot of the Saturday morning cartoons I grew up watching. Like they won't show Doc Ock kill off a bunch of like soldiers or whatever when he's like you know wrecking shit up in in New York City, but they will show the soldiers run into cars and then have Doc Ock destroy them. Right. Like, so it's, it's not that implied and, and that's literally the same thing. Like, and, and I think that you're, you're essentially saying, well, the same thing, like, uh, on that point, like, yeah. like the, the concepts of cosmic horror are rated, but they can be discussed easily and without showing any violence. Yeah, absolutely. See, I think it's a net good for horror movies because it makes the genre more accessible to the masses, you know, even though I will totally agree that the MPAA sucks and is biased towards big tent pictures versus indie pictures or pictures that depict things like LGBTQ issues or things like that. Name an industry that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but also, you know, like I think a lot of younger people are getting into horror movies because of PG-13. I mean, maybe, but at the same time, I don't know, man. Like, look at something like The Babadook that we talked about not long ago. There is not really any violence in that movie at all. There's not even really any on-screen death. It's a horror movie for sure, though, and it is R-rated. Sure. You know, I I don't know how that goes against the point though i mean i think there are certainly successful movies that are r-rated well, the Babadook's australian you know? right yeah I, yeah there are so many successful r-rated horror movies well you're saying but... that babadook is properly rated though right sorry i mean oh yeah, yeah well like, no i'm i'm that it's it should be rated but that's r. that's why i'm saying it it has that rating not and... not for violence or because it's inaccessible but because it looks at themes that are mature right and it exists in contrast to a lot of the other films that are rated lower that should be rated higher yeah i guess so like so the problem you have is is with the rating itself and the system it's not that it's not the accessibility the thing is though i'm not necessarily arguing against you know r-rated horror movies and the usefulness and themes of R-rated horror movies, I'm more arguing for the usefulness of PG-13-rated horror movies, getting people into the genre and introducing people... As, as an introduction, to, you're yeah, to... Or goosebumps. You know, idea of horror, yeah, you know? like that. Like, like, it's good that those things exist, you know, and existed. Yeah, even though, you know, there might not be as much quality... In that rating, uh, just because of the limitations, I don't think the limitations are always a hindrance. I think you can make good PG-13 horror movies. And on top of that, I think PG-13 horror movies are a good way to get more mainstream audiences into the genre. I, I suppose so, but at the same time, I don't know if that comes down so much to the ratings making them more accessible as to what parents will allow their kids to consume sure but i I think a lot more parents are more willing to let their kids go to pg-13 movies than uh kids going with their parents to see 
R-rated movies. You know, you have to have a parental guidance person to see an R-rated movie unless you're... What, I mean, yeah, sure. If you're going to see it in the theater, yeah, absolutely. You're you're totally right. But also, like, there are plenty of parents out there who will take their kids to see R-rated movies or who will let their kids watch R-rated movies at home. Like, my, my parents, after age, like, 10 or 11, my parents stopped giving a shit about me watching R-rated movies. And sure. I think, like, they, they recognize that you'd mature at that level. And the society, like, it's not necessarily illegal or that law isn't isn't pursued you know in any way like sure. i think i think that 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 the, I, I, that rating should still exist i think on that there's front. a big difference than watching that from home and going to the theater with friends of your own age to see something sure. without parents you know yeah. i think that's a critical point to someone's development and i think pg-13 rated horror movies play a good part in that you know i think <laughs> They have a value that is often under-considered well, I in think terms of scope of For all the same the reasons that, that Goosebumps was fucking rad and why, like, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was so awesome. Like, uh, I mean, shit, that book fucked me up when I was a kid. Yeah. Like, um, Mostly the illustrations. No, I agree. I, yeah. I had a set of those myself. Yeah, and, and for all the same reasons, like, Goosebumps isn't scary as an adult, but when you're a kid, it's scary. And it's, and, and it's I think that's a cool, uh, and I, I only have respect for R.L. Stein on that Here's front. Here's my primary issue with PG-13 rated horror movies, and sure. this is not a completely blanket statement. There are obviously films that defy this, but... My problem with PG-13 rated horror films is they will often underdevelop and undercut good premises and good concepts in order to make a film PG-13 and able to be marketed to a wider audience and that they will ultimately do the film itself a disservice by refusing to get into quote-unquote r-rated themes i'll agree with that i mean i was still very mad about the venom movie for that 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 very reason well venom the venom movie goes goes an extra mile and that mm -hmm. it was shot as an r-rated film and then the producers chickened out and cut the graphic stuff to make it did you guys watch the venom movie no i did over christmas break wasn't that bad do you think it would have been better for the R-rated? Uh, honestly, probably not. Honestly, because it was, it was already a little too long as is, and putting more bloat and filler in it, even if it's violent content, I don't think would have helped it anymore. I think it, if you were going to make it R-rated, you would have to do some structural changes as well. Here's an, Yeah, I was going to say, here's an extension of that question. Do you think it would have been better if the R-rated stuff had been left in and fat had been trimmed elsewhere? If it didn't have a problem with runtime, but it was not afraid to explore more mature things and have graphic violence, do you think it would have been a better film? Yes, I think the, the core idea of that is a good one. You know, like the problem with PG-13 horror movies is less of them catering towards that audience and more towards they were originally trying to cater towards an R-rated audience and had to trim it down to PG-13. Yeah. And or dumbed it down, which is, you know, was my initial, you know. But I think I think a lot of times if you're originally 
trying to cater something towards a more mass audience and not intentionally trying for an R rating, then you can make quality PG-13 movies. And I think there are a lot of quality yeah. PG-13 well, a good, a good example, a good there. example is A Quiet Place. A Quiet Place was PG-13. I, I don't think it would have been made any worse by making it R-rated, and maybe I would have liked to see a little bit more violence in that film, but it is a extremely well-done, solid horror film. So that is, that is to your point. I think ultimately we we should fucking do away with the rating system and there should just be a disclaimer on the things that are in the film with no rating and let parents decide for themselves whether their kids are mature enough oh, to that's, see that's that. woke as hell dude content rating like i mean i'm, I'm here for it should, though, i mean that's honestly. that's essentially what they they used well, to do I, content right warning, you have the guy come out you know warning. from behind the curtain and say oh be wary you know this film has spooky images in it. well right and that and you see that you know when you're watching movie trailers when it gives the rating next to it it'll say this is rated r for uh scenes of graphic violence or uh sexual themes or nudity or swearing keep that stuff get rid of the rating and stop forbidding kids to go to movies without without a, a parent or whatever have a disclaimer about what is being discussed or explored in the film and let parents decide whether their child is mature enough to see that. On one hand, I agree with that, and I used to be super hardcore in that camp. As I've grown, though, I think there's a lot of shitty parents out there that don't give a shit and would much rather just not give a shit at all. It's not the movie's fault, though. That's the parents. But at the same time, you know, you can't just let... A seven-year-old kid go see Saw. Yeah, like you know? it takes like, all plausible deniability away from the theater. It was is I think one big issue. Yeah, but like, also the, how the is kid, it... the seven-year-old might go see the R movie without the parents' knowledge? And how does the, the theater... seven-year-old get into the theater without the parents' knowledge? Oh, fine, fine. Like twelve-year-old, but like okay. I mean, well, like it, regardless, it's like one if thing they get to into the talk theater. about the theater-going experience, but like. We're in the age of the internet as well, and that makes it a little more murky. That makes ratings even more arbitrary, because it's not like, you know, even with fucking porn and porn sites asking, are you 18 before you come in here? Like, yeah, you're fucking... Well, twelve-year-olds are, are clicking for the same yes, reason as, 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 as rating in films that gives at least a level of due diligence and an agency and deniability from those websites. It's, it's a, it's a removal. Theaters. It's I a agree. removal of liability. That's all it is. It's they, it's just so people and companies don't get sued. That's ultimately the whole point of ratings. And that's why I think it's, it's arbitrary, especially in the digital age where kids can go online and find literally anything they want to and their parents don't know it. And, you know, it's all it is, is a removal of liability. Yeah, I agree. But I almost think that removing that creates a sort of wild west mentality agreed where you know in a capitalistic society you're just pushing for as many people seeing your content as possible like with the internet there's still regardless there's still means to like to block like like graphic material like there's still the net nannies and all the other things like sure like we were kids like we found proxies and ways to get around those things but like 
you you still at least like there's still some gating and, involved and, and it, it is you are putting a framework around those things but from the, this kid's perspective whether they can get past it or not the, I, that says hey maybe you're too you know like you're you're too young to see this stuff yet the initial and the parent can decide yeah but the initial question that we are asking is not whether these things are necessary but whether they are good and whether they help the the art itself mm-hmm. because of such and such and I, I'm not disagreeing that removing that stuff creates a Wild West mentality, especially on the internet. I'm not disagreeing that it's necessary to remove that liability that, yeah, you have to click that you are 18 before you enter certain porn sites. I'm not saying that, that there's not reason for that. I'm just saying that I personally believe that it is arbitrary. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah, I mean, it is arbitrary. That's my response I, to the question the, is I don't think it's good. I think the, it's arbitrary. The one other point I'd like to make is, you know, like, the original rating system came in a response to the Hayes Code, which was just straight-up censorship of movies. Yes. And I'd much rather have a rating system Same. than censorship. Than censorship, 100%. You know? And that's, that's, a, that's a kind of flimsy argument, because there's no way we'd have censorship today. And I say this now, fucking fingers crossed, knocking on all the wood... But like that was audio poison. But, yeah, <laughs> knocking on all of the wood, figuratively, you know, and literally. Yes, it's much better if it's a if it's a a rating system or straight up censorship. I will take the rating system a hundred percent of the time. Also, because now I'm an adult and I can consume whatever media I want, and it doesn't fucking matter. I those kids can't get in to see those R-rated movies. Fuck them. I can, yeah. and I'll laugh as I walk past well, them okay. into the theater. If the kid really wants to go out and see them, they still can. If right. the kid really wants to, you know, like he can get his fucking cousin or whatever, or you can, you can, uh, they can just pirate them. Like, well, yeah, well, there's plenty of ways, like for those kids to still see those movies. But at least there's a gating. When we were so when, okay. when we were 16, if we wanted to see an R-rated movie, we would just drive down to Gulf Shores because the theater at the Tanger Outlet Center didn't shit. didn't ID people. It was the only one in Baldwin County, and so we would have to drive all the way to Gulf Shores. But yeah, if we wanted to see an R-rated movie, it's like, all right, yeah, I guess we're going to the Tanger because they don't ID. So you right. know, well, like, I think I think like that those arbitrary qualities don't diminish it though. I think if anything, that that makes it more valid. It only like, it only point. diminishes it when the film are being made with the express but, goal of being accessible to kids i think the production yeah. side of it yeah yeah, yeah the yeah, rating yeah. aspect of it yeah i think we but, but that's agree. but that is not something that would even be thought about if the rating system didn't exist that's my point yeah is that but, film productions consider that problem though productions consider the rating that they're going to get as they're making the film. And some films will just say, you know what, this is a this is for mature adult audiences. We don't care. This is going to be an R-rated movie. Others will be like, well, we have this idea where we could make it really mature and adult, but, you know, I want to make more off a of ticket sales, so we're going to make it PG-13 uh, I don't know to sell if it I to agree kids. with that at the same time, though, because I think all movies, regardless of rating systems, take their audience into consideration in the making of it. A lot of times they are trying to get as big of an audience as possible. But also a lot of times those decisions are made by the studio that's funding the film, not by the artists who are making it. Yeah, and but the thing is, I don't think all horror movies need to be mature, serious, visceral, intense things, you know? Like, 
this is a genre that is equally yeah Yeah, but also hellraiser as it is gremlins yeah sure but also kids are scared by different things than adults are it's all just about who you're trying to scare. I think if you're making a horror film that is not just a comedy horror film, if you're making a horror film, your your goal should be to scare people. But are you trying to scare kids or are you trying to scare adults? Well, he's saying that there's, that... there's a demographic of people that exist between the two. Correct. And at the same time, I don't 100% know if I buy the distinction because I... I'm going to give you a quick anecdote. When I was in elementary school, it was around the time The Ring came out, the Gore Verbinski remake. And I, my only experience of the movie was kids who had told me about the plot secondhand. And it was so much more horrifying hearing about it secondhand through others and through, you know, the retelling of it from others than it was actually seeing it years on later yeah sure i think i think the idea that these horrors don't need to be directly oriented at adults this needs to be only adult content you know like i think if it's a good horror movie there's a universality to it you know there doesn't need to be mature themes for it to be a legitimately sure but what but what made it horrifying to you as a kid hearing it secondhand that was your imagination right because you hadn't seen it firsthand so you were imagining what people are telling you and as we say all the time on the podcast what you can imagine is almost always more horrifying than what somebody can show you so it's just like what I've mentioned on the show before is that when I was a kid, the fucking theatrical trailer for Alien vs. Predator gave me nightmares because I saw something and my imagination filled in the rest and it was horrifying. Yes, yeah, and I find and I finally yeah. and I finally see the movie and it's dog shit. But that doesn't mean that it didn't scare me as a kid because I it allowed my imagination to run wild with it. And your imagination is always going to scare you more than what somebody can show you, I think. Yeah, and I agree. I don't think that it goes against the point I was trying to make, though. I think the reason that works is because the horror isn't strictly adult content, but it is a universal type of horror that works even in the imagination of a kid, you know? A kid doesn't have to bring in baggage of understanding social relationships you know in the same way that sometimes more complex horror movies require of you you know like i don't think you could show a kid the babadook and have him understand the idea of parenthood in the same way right but that's that's also why the babadook is not made as a movie to scare kids it's to scare adults that's my point exactly it's it's the audience that it's being aimed at. Well, that that movie is directly catered towards adults, and I'm saying that doesn't work for every movie. And The Ring is a great example where like it works on a more universal horror than that because even as a kid, as a young person, you can understand yeah. the horror of that on a different level. It's there there are varying tiers of bureaucracy and you know too much bureaucracy is an equal amount of chaos as no bureaucracy. And I think I think a little bit of gating 
um, and a, a general platform and means of rating is is fine as long as like the it's it's maybe the the points that the rating is associated with that are problematic and the production behind it. But largely, like uh, I'll I'll just I'll sign off my. That was saying. one spicy pepperoni. It sure was. <laughs> yep. And uh, I guess that'll bring us to the end of this episode. Yeah. Um Next week is... Is it time for Happy Death Day? Yeah! All right, I yeah. Watch the old one. Uh, well, we all do. <laughs> no, yeah. no, oh, word. Yeah. <laughs> um, New to all of us. Yeah, so Happy Death Day to you is coming out, or maybe is already out by the time we release this episode. Yeah, it looks pretty right. I'm, um, I'm kind of keen on it. So we're going to watch the first one, because none of us have seen it, and then we're going to go see the second yeah. one, and we're going to talk about them like we do. Which is interesting, yeah, because I had no interest in the first one, but the second one actually looks Fun, yeah, so. I don't know. We'll uh, we'll see. I have they might both be crap. I Who's have to say? zero expectations, but uh, yeah, I guess we'll find out. Tune in next week if you like the show uh, and you want to support us. Take a few quick seconds out of your day to leave us a, a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Hit those five stars. Help us move up in the numbers or wherever you get your podcasts. If you can rate them, do the thing, and we love and appreciate you. Uh, follow us on Twitter at uh, Pod People Pod and uh, do the letterbox thing as well uh, to see our whole list of films and ratings and links to the episodes. You know the shtick. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome or don't. Yeah, send me some more hot takes at Mr. Sheets on Twitter. Obviously, this first one was very fruitful, but if I can get these two to yell at me more, I'll be very happy. If you got a good hot take, yeah, send it to us uh, either on the the Pod People Twitter or at Ben directly. And if you got a good one, you might hear your hot take on the show. I'm occasionally tweeting for Light Arc Studios. Actually, tweeting for them again. Yeah, I did, yeah. I did three tweets this week. Three whole tweets, guys. Uh, so tweeting yeah, for Light them. Arc Studio. You mean um, for us? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, <laughs> it's an us. It's it's just our studio. Like, it's yeah. not a. <laughs> Um, uh, there are, there are, there are no shareholders we have to be beholden to. I just tweet. But anyway, uh, you can also find me on my arts, excuse me, on my art station, uh, under Cleveland Mosier or Iron Prism. And, uh, apart from that, uh, Google me, see what turns up. I don't even know. Yeah. Go check out Cleveland's art and then tweet at us what you think it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> do that. Tweet, I'll love that. Tweet at us the value of Cleveland's artwork. Yeah, tweet. If it's, and you know what? No, no wrong answers. If it's, if it's, uh, one taquito, if it's, if it's four schmeckles, if it's 12 bits, you name it. Do your best interpretation is morph and give us a very pretentious oh my God. critique. Oh of, my God, please do that. <laughs> yes. Cleveland's art. Sometimes you just got to morph a boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are the pod people. Thank you, as always, for listening. Tune back next week for our happy death day and yours. Uh, Until next time, uh, stay out of the art galleries. Have a good evening, y'all.